welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, as uh, we begin, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is our text, where we are in chapter 1 and verse 5. Last Sunday's message, if you remember, was uh, reminding us how essential it is to embrace God as Trinity, to embrace God as being Trinity. And history has proven that any time you uh, depart or deny, uh, depart from or deny the diversity within the Godhead, or distort God's unity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you end up with either Marcionism, that taught that the Old Testament and the New Testament revealed two different gods, or Arianism, which teaches that Jesus is less than God and was created by God. Uh, or you end up with modalism, which teaches there uh, that all three are God, uh, but not at the same time. Each of these three uh, were condemned as heresies by the early church. And um, each one of these were condemned as heresies by the early church. And uh, early on in the church age, actually and are still alive and thriving today. Uh, not only do they confuse the nature of God, but they also forcefully reject what God has revealed as plain in the Scriptures. And as you chart, chart their departure, their origin and their departure away from Trinitarianism, and you follow the progression of each to its apex, uh, the, the magnitude of their error compounds over time. They get further and further from the truth. Uh, Marcionism ends up in licentiousness as the belief that there are two different gods, the erroneous belief that there are two different gods, an Old Testament God who's kind of angry and grumpy and always you know, wanting wrath. Uh, he is replaced, they would believe, by the all-loving Jesus who will never be offended by any behavior whatsoever is where that usually leads. So it's very licentious and tolerates every kind of sin. With um, Arianism, it interferes with the substitutionary atonement for mankind needs God to die on the cross to bear the sins of the world, uh, not a created being. So Arianism... Uh, departs from truth there, and also then with modalism, that uh, the false belief that all three, Father, Son, and Spirit are all three God, but not at the same time, God just changes form, eventually uh, that becomes an elevation of only the Holy Spirit and the experience that you have with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't draw attention uh, to uh, God's Son primarily to be worshipped but that God is to be experienced through all kinds of, of fantastic experiences. 
But to answer the question you may have remaining from last Sunday about how Trinitarianism could be essential doctrine, when new believers in Christ, you know, they have little or no concept of this, uh, therefore how could Trinitarianism be essential to faith? Uh, the answer that I would give for that, my answer is this, all true Christians conversions, all true Christian conversions are by nature Trinitarianism from the origin. We would all agree, all who are Christians would agree, that a Christian must accept that God the Father has a son whom he sent to live a sinless life and die for our sins. There's two. Therefore, we must accept that God has a son to be Christian. And the faith you are granted to believe this, that God sent his son to die, the faith you are granted to believe this requires an act of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. All must be born again. So God the Holy Spirit alone sovereignly grants the faith that God's son died for your sins and rose on the third day. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three present at the genesis of every true Christian conversion. There is no salvation without Trinity, and uh, therefore all truly born-again Christians are Trinitarian, whether they initially recognize it or not. Uh, but later when you teach them from the Scriptures what is revealed, the Holy Spirit is teacher, right? As you teach them later about what Scripture reveals concerning the Holy Spirit and how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin, they instinctively reply, well, I, I guess that must be how it happened. That's what Scripture says. Uh, therefore, the virgin birth also becomes essential doctrine. You cannot deny it, uh, the Holy Trinity or the virgin birth, and be born again. But we must move on today. We've got a big topic. We're going to be continuing in verse 5 with a message I have titled, the age of tribulation. The age of tribulation. Did you know that Christ's church is passing through, living in an age of tribulation? It's true. It's true. The era in which we now live is often described as the church age. The church age. Scripture refers to this entire period following Christ's resurrection from the grave as the last days, the latter days, the latter times, the last times, and the last hour. 1 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 20 says of Christ, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. So scripture, uh, scriptural writers including Peter declared in the mid-first century that these are the last times. The writer of Hebrews opens his epistle with these words. He says, God, after he long ago to the fathers, uh, spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, speaking of the Old Testament revelations, uh, he says, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son. 
1 John 2 verse 18, one more. Uh, the Apostle John declares, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So most of the language in the Bible, the New Testament, that refers to the last times, it describes circumstances in a period that is current, during the last 2,000 years. Again, this last hour began at Christ's resurrection and continues while we wait for God's Son to appear again for a second time. That event is called the parousia in Scripture, His second coming or second advent. And outside of America's borders, pretty cozy borders, I might add, the current age can be perilous times for Christians. The church age can be a pretty perilous time filled with all kinds of tribulation. Did you know that when the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.1, but realize this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, that Paul is describing to Timothy in the Greek conditions that already existed in 66 AD and continue then into the current age in which we live. It was present. It's in the present tense in the Greek. There's really no disagreement about this. Uh, even the, uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is put out by Dallas Theological Seminary, they make this note. It says, and it, as in his previous letter, Paul warned Timothy about the collapse predicted for the last days. A term, they say, which includes the entire period between the first century and Christ's return. These are the last days. You didn't actually think that the circumstances of the last days that Paul describes then to Timothy how men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, on and on and on. It says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You didn't think that was describing some future age yet to come, did you? <laughs> oh, it's here, and it's been here. With perfect accuracy, it describes this age, the last age. These are the last days. And um, it's in that same chapter and context, 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul reminds Timothy of Paul's experience. Paul's own experience described during our scripture reading earlier in Acts chapter 14. Paul reminds Timothy of this suffering that we read earlier saying, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. Paul says, What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Folks, this is not referring to some future later age, some distant age. Uh, This describes the church age that has been from the very beginning enduring all kinds of tribulation, filled with much tribulation. In fact, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, we've been studying this in the adult Sunday school class uh, recently, he refers to this same current age as the tribulation. If you offer me a little patience, I'll explain. Through the Apostle John, these, these are God's words, not mine, in the first century, after being arrested and exiled to a penal colony on an island called Patmos, John wrote this. He said, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island, of, island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was there, because of the word of God and the testimony of the gospel. John refers to his age, this age, the church age, these last days as the tribulation. Folks, that's with the definite article, for those of you who like to play around with Greek. The tribulation. Not a tribulation. He also describes himself along with many Christians that he is writing to, including us, that all together we are fellow partakers in the tribulation. Uh, That tribulation has lasted 2,000 years now, roughly. Um, And this tribulation age has been an extended period of severe persecution for Christ's church around the world. Now, I know many, many Americans are probably thinking, oh, no, 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 no. No thanks. Not for me. I'll pass. By the grace of God, not yet. Not yet. Now, before you get completely flustered, uh, we must acknowledge that the Bible also speaks of a, with an indefinite article, a great tribulation. And we can have a respectful discussion about what that great tribulation is. Some believe a great tribulation, that's in Matthew 24, or the great tribulation in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14, refers only and exclusively to a future period immediately preceding Christ's return. And we'll eventually discuss how they arrive at that conclusion. In, the, in this series, we will talk about that, and I'll offer a definition and a description of a great tribulation, uh, but not today, not today. Instead, I want to offer a definition and description of what the apostles John, Paul, Peter, and Jesus describe broadly as an age of tribulation, an age of tribulation, i.e., the tribulation. If you were in the AM adult, Sunday school class last Sunday. You saw me play a video of John MacArthur uh, in regards to our study on the mark of the beast. And in that video, John stated, uh, this is almost a direct quote, but he stated uh, that the tribulation is a period of seven years before Christ returns. Folks, that definition is inaccurate. It's inaccurate. 
Scripture indicates the tribulation has already lasted near 2,000 years. Now when John defines the last seven years before Christ's return as a separate distinct period of great tribulation, we can and we will discuss whether there is merit to that claim. Uh, But it would be better if John would also use that terminology, great tribulation, as always referring to the last seven years more precisely as the great tribulation. And, and not just as many do refer to it as the tribulation. Because I, I know John MacArthur, I imagine anyhow he would agree, I don't know him, uh, he would agree that in this conversation, choice of words matters. Choice of words terminology matters. But a problem arises with John's theological camp, and it is a very solid, very, very good camp. A problem arises when they are unwilling to give any credence to the proposal that the tribulation can apply to anything other than the last seven years before Christ returns. And this blurs the line between the tribulation and a great tribulation by implying that the word tribulation should only ever be applied to the last seven years of the church age. That's patently inaccurate. The entire church age is described in Scripture as tribulation for Christians. During our Scripture reading earlier, the Apostle Paul was stoned. He was dragged out of town, presumed dead, and he assured Christians that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In fact, to to be provocative, I was originally going to title this sermon, The Tribulation is for Christians. But because I had not made an allowance for a distinction between the tribulation, and a biblical reference to a great tribulation, I decided to wait. But the fact of that is true. That title would be accurate. The tribulation is for Christians. Because according to Jesus' letters given to seven early churches in Revelation, whom are identified as fellow partakers in it, the tribulation is for Christians. Wayne Grudem, a widely respected professor of systematic theology, writes this, quote, It seems best to conclude with the great majority of the church throughout history that the church will go through the time of tribulation predicted by Jesus. We would probably not have chosen this path for ourselves, he writes, but the decision was not ours to make. There will surely be varied experiences, varied levels of suffering during this church age. Some will be minor, others will be moderate, still others will be mortal. They'll be fatal. And they have been for the entire church age. In Revelation chapter 2, for example... The angel of Smyrna, to them, uh, to him, Jesus says, 
Do not fear. You will be tested with tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death. How much worse can it get than death? And I know it's been proposed that during the last seven-year Great Tribulation, it will be worse than death, they say. Suffering will get so bad uh, that God won't allow people to die. It is stated that they will say uh, that man will cry out to the rocks and to the hills, Fall on me! Cover us! And fall on us. They'll say that because apparently they won't be allowed to die. Um, But friends, I'm going to propose that such assertions have confused the tribulation period with the day of the Lord. When the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, a day that will come like a thief, when God pours out a cataclysmic judgment on the earth, an abrupt judgment, just as he did, Jesus says, in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. Sudden, cataclysmic, total judgment. It will come suddenly. And according to Christ, until that day, man will continue buying and selling and marrying and giving in marriage and even mocking the promise of Christ's return and God's judgment. And Jesus says in Luke 17, it will be a day like the day of Lot when he went out of Sodom. They they were enjoying everyday life until the end. And then it happened suddenly. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Then Jesus says, again, this is Luke 17, it will be exactly the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. John MacArthur, whom I greatly respect and admire. John MacArthur teaches the proposition that the Great Tribulation is a a seven-year elongated season of God's wrath. A seven-year elongated season of God's wrath, rather than what I believe Scripture describes as a sudden and unexpected and a terrifying day. Of the Lord's wrath. It is the day of the Lord. Um, That season, that seven year season of God's wrath, is why uh, MacArthur and his camp believe that, uh, and his camp believe that the tribulation uh, will be seven years, and they believe that Christians will be raptured seven years prior to Christ's return. All Christians agree we are promised that we will not have to endure God's wrath. But John encounters a challenge, and we all encounter challenges in interpretation. John encounters a challenge in explaining how Christ's physical return to the earth at the end of those seven years of ongoing wrath, how does that come suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief? If there's been seven years of cataclysmic wrath when people can't die. I don't think anybody would be surprised with Jesus coming at that point. 
If God's bowls of wrath have been poured out over a seven-year period, how then does Christ's appearance, where we are told every eye will see him, how does that come unexpectedly like a thief? Especially when Jesus says that day will be like any other day. But we're all going to agree in verse 10 next Sunday that this day of the Lord's wrath, it's, it's not for Christians, praise God. It's for unbelievers. And God promises to rescue us from the wrath that is to come. But nowhere are Christians promised that we will not have to face tribulation. The tribulation is for Christians. Jesus said to Smyrna, you will be tested with tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death. And this is our command. Be faithful through tribulation up to death. And to Thyatira, Jesus told John to write this, either repent of your immorality with the prophetess Jezebel, or he tells the church this, or I will throw you into great tribulation. Wow. I don't know of any place in Scripture where Christians are promised we won't have to suffer and endure tribulation. If you have that reference, please, please send it to me. Even tribulation unto death. Instead, Christians are assured that we will not endure God's wrath that is to come on the day of the Lord's return. That we are promised. That we are promised. The tribulation is currently 2,000 years. It is an elongated period where Christians around the globe suffer. They've suffered tribulation at the hands of godless men. Scripture describes how it happened repeatedly to the apostles, even unto death. And we observe that tribulation is happening in Thessalonica once the gospel arrived there. In fact, today our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, beginning in verse 6, that they received the word in much tribulation. There we read, You also became imitators of us, says Paul, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became example, an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we, we have no need to say anything. That's quite a commendation. So they received the word amongst much tribulation. And if you look back at verse 5, we know that this word is the gospel. And if you look forward at verse 8, it is also referred to as the word of the Lord. So the cause of much tribulation in Thessalonica is the word of God and the gospel. Looking back again at the Apostle John in Revelation 
chapter 1 and verse 9, he describes himself as a fellow partaker in the tribulation, being exiled to the island called Patmos. Do you remember why? Because of the word of God and the gospel, the testimony of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, as it chronicles Paul's missionary journeys, uh, we discover it is the same testimony of the word of God and the gospel for which he is mocked, for which he is stoned, left for dead, imprisoned later, run off from many places, eventually martyred, eventually martyred, for which he assures us it is through many tribulations that we, referring to all of us, must enter the kingdom of God. And after suffering much tribulation, it is the same word of God and the gospel that the Thessalonians have surely embraced in verse 8. As Paul says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Surely they endured much suffering for the word of God and the cause of Christ. Therefore, at least as it pertains to tribulations in Scripture that are repeatedly being thrust upon Christ's church during the church age, it appears as though the church is not preserved from tribulation, but rather that they are preserved through tribulation. Even the most dreadful experiences of tribulation, including martyrdom for many. Um, it happened to 11 out of 12 apostles. Martyrdom is still happening. It's still occurring around the world today through burning, through beheading, starvation, torture, crucifixion. And for centuries, the church has persevered through it all. Through it all. And that really shouldn't surprise us for Romans 8 verse 35 asks this question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as is written, says Paul, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But then he says, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. And we think that we're suffering because a few places... Ask us to wear a mask. Masks may be beneficial. Some people wear them. That is perfectly appropriate. Some think they're uncomfortable. That is true as well. But they're not religious persecution. The rules are applied equally to believers and unbelievers 
What we need to be asking is this. Are we prepared to suffer like the church of Thessalonica? Are we prepared to suffer like Paul and the other apostles? Are we prepared to suffer for the name of Christ? And are we preparing ourselves to suffer tribulation at the hands of godless men for things that really matter? The word of God and the gospel. Thessalonica surely did. They surely did. And they endured it joyfully. Paul writes, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Do you know why they were so filled with joy? Do you want joy in your life? Everyone can say yes. Then stop seeking that joy through the possessions of the world and trying to find it in them. And listen to this. Thessalonica was overjoyed because, verse 5, the gospel came to them in power and with full conviction by the Holy Spirit. This validated they are truly, in verse 4, beloved by God and chosen as his elect. They proved themselves to be new creatures in verse 9. It says they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So they had a changed life that validated the work of the Holy Spirit and their conviction. And they are waiting for his son, verse 10, from heaven, whom God raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. What could make you more joyful than to know that for your sins Christ died and for you he rose again from the dead and that because of his work on the cross at Calvary we don't have to face any wrath of God. That's about as good as it gets on this earth. We know that we're beloved by God and that we'll be rescued from the wrath that is to come that's going to be poured out against all the world for sin. It will be poured out. Um, if you're searching for a reason to, joy, to rejoice today, believe in Christ. Trust in Christ, not in this world. According to this introduction from Paul in chapter 1, Will Christians be forced to endure the coming wrath of God? No. Absolutely not. Unequivocally not. With the, discussion, um, with the discussion of a great tribulation or the great tribulation, with that set aside, that, that discussion about that set aside for the moment, according to this same introduction from the last couple weeks, an overview of 1 Thessalonians and the passage that we have been studying, will true Christians have to endure tribulation? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yes, in fact, the Apostle John assures the tribulation is for Christians. It's not for unbelievers. It's for us. It's a period when 
Christ's beloved elect, the ones he poured out his, his blood on the cross for. They will suffer rejection, sometimes cruel maltreatment at the hands of evil men. And we receive that treatment due to our unwavering devotion to the word of God and the gospel. Maybe the question that we should be asking is why aren't we suffering tribulation here in America? What's wrong here? But in the meantime, what we can do is love God. We can love one another and obey verse 10 as a day of vengeance is coming. A day of vengeance of God's wrath and retribution for sin. That doesn't belong to us. We don't get to shape that day. Instead, it says, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That is next week's message. Verse 10. As we close today... We've been offered just a, just a minute sampling, a minute sampling of the term tribulation as it appears in Scripture. You might not have previously been aware of this, but um, the term tribulation is not an uncommon term or uncommon Greek word in Scripture. Uh, in fact, we learned just a few weeks ago in the adult Bible class, the morning class, that the Greek word for tribulation, it's thalipsis. It's a very common word in Scripture. Very common. In fact, Philipsis appears 45 times in the Greek New Testament. 45 times. The word means and is sometimes translated in English as great distress, affliction, anguish, persecution, and tribulation. But though employed in different tenses, it's the, it's the same Greek term, thalipsis. There are about three occurrences of this word in Scripture that apply only to unbelievers. There are about seven more occurrences where the context suggests it could describe the experience of both believers and unbelievers. Follow me? Of 45 times, three times is described as being solely the experience of unbelievers. Seven times, it could be the experience, it probably is the experience of unbelievers and believers. And in about 35 out of 45 occurrences of the word thalipsis, it applies exclusively to Christians. Exclusively. And the following are just a few examples for today. Matthew 24 and verse 9, Jesus tells his disciples, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. John 16 verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Romans 5, verse 3, Paul says, We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. 
Romans 12 and verse 12, Christians are described as rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Ephesians 3 and verse 13, Paul says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. And Hebrews 10 verse 32, Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who are so treated. One more, Revelation 2 and verse 9. Jesus said to the angel of the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The church age is an age of tribulation. Here are a couple more nuggets before we depart. Uh, I have many more things to say, but not today. Not today. But number one, number one, just because you live in America and have not experienced tribulation does not suggest that Christians overseas and over the centuries have not experienced the most brutal manifestations of martyrdom through burning, through beheading, through beating, and hanging. Therefore, it is not fair, nor is it scriptural, to suggest that those persecuted in Burma or elsewhere around the globe, it's unfair to tell them that Christians will not have to endure the tribulation. They read Scripture very differently than we do at home here in America. Very differently. And they would respond like the Apostle John did. They would say, we too are fellow partakers in the tribulation. Secondly, tribulation in Scripture is virtually always described in context as being localized. Okay? After Stephen was stoned to death in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 8 tells us that on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. Acts, descri- Acts chapter 11 describes it as the tribulation that occurred in connection with Stephen. And it says that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So, in Scripture, when you see that tribulation arises in one place, Scripture describes the disciples fleeing to another place. It's not worldwide, is what I'm trying to say. It's localized. And even when a great tribulation is described by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, he warns his followers to flee Judea into the surrounding mountains. So his, follower, so his followers are there. And it says, for the sake of God's elect, those days will be shortened. So the elect are there. And there are only two other times the phrase great tribulation, megos, thalipsis, appear in Scripture. Two other times. Revelation 2 verse 22 And Revelation 7 verse 14 are the only other two occurrences of great tribulation in Scripture. And they are used to describe the experiences of Christians. 
We'll talk about that later. Christians are not promised to escape tribulation. We are promised we will be rescued from the wrath to come. That will be worldwide, and that is a conversation we will have, uh, or at least begin next week. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the love of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray.